0: Welcome to Church of the King. Any, anybody here ever been a pastor or wanted to be a pastor someday? This morning's text is the kind of text that might change your mind about that. Uh, it is exactly why I love the Bible. The Bible is not neat and clean. It's messy. It's real. It's honest, especially about the sins of its heroes. It doesn't matter if it's Adam or Noah or... Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Moses or David or Solomon. There's only one hero who's perfect and he died to save us from our sins so that we don't have to hide any of ours. So the Bible is unique in that it's completely comfortable with the sins of its heroes and the weirdnesses. Noah got drunk. Abraham passed off his wife as his sister. Moses killed a man in anger. David committed adultery. And then arranged to have the husband killed. Solomon had a harem of pagan women. And that's just the men. The Bible chronicles men and women of faith. It shows us their good example and their bad example. And then there's Jesus who stands above everyone. Perfect. And he came to save sinners, which is what we all are. Now, we here study the books of the Bible. We study them In order, verse by verse, we studied the Sermon on the Mount, Proverbs, Philippians, we're in the book of Ruth. So just refresh my memory. The book of Ruth starts with the story of a man named Elimelech. That's right. All right, Elimelech set out from Bethlehem, which means house of bread, but it was a time of famine, right? And this is the Bethlehem of the Bible. City of David, city where Jesus is born. This is sort of the history of Bethlehem. How did it become the city of David? This is part of that story. Okay, so time of famine, Elimelech sets out from Bethlehem with his wife and his two sons, Malon and Killian. Strong Irish sounding names, right? Okay, so he sets out with his family and they go to a place called Moab, Moab, a good place or a bad place? It's a bad place, right? Bad news. Okay? They left God's people, they left God's place in search of food. They went to Moab. Moab is bad bad news. God's people don't belong there. God's forbidden his people from having anything to do with Moab or the Moabites. Okay? So, on the one hand, we understand things are complicated, right? There's a famine. He's got to figure out how to provide for his family. Okay, extreme times call for extreme solutions. Often God has grace for people who make hard decisions in extreme times. And yet on the other hand, Elimelech's decisions led to what? Well, his sons take Moabite wives, which is absolutely forbidden, and they all die. And the wives are barren for 10 years. So it appears as though God is judging Elimelech and his family for leaving God's people in God's place and going to Moab, which was forbidden and especially than marrying Moabite wives, right? Okay, so we've talked about, well, we don't want to have pat answers for everything, but sometimes when things line up, you got to be real. Sometimes God disciplines us for our sins, right? And it's clear and obvious, and that is what, it appear, what appears to be happening to the family. family. Okay? Sometimes bad things happen, horrible things happen, and there's no clear reason that ties directly to our sin, and we see that in Scripture too, right? That's Job. Some of us have suffered great hardships and pains for no apparent reason, except that it pleased God and his, his ways are not our ways, and sometimes God brings hard things, right? And some of us have suffered hard things as a consequence of our sins, and God's disciplined us. Okay, so what we have, as the story picks up, is Naomi. Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. She's a widow, they're widows. She hears there's bread back in Bethlehem. She's going to go back to God's people, back to God's place. She tells her daughters-in-law, they don't have to come. Go back to your families. There's nothing for you if you come with me. I'm not gonna get married. I'm not gonna have more sons to raise up for you. Going to Bethlehem. I don't know what's going to happen in your Moabites, and uh, I don't like Moabites there. Like, you're free to go back to your families. See if you can get. you're, You're still young. See if you can get married. Orpah says, "Okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to my mother's house. I'm going to go back to my gods, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites." And Ruth says, "No way, no way." Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, where you stay, I will stay. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. That's where I'm going to die. That's where I'm going to be buried. And may God curse me if I break this vow. So there's Ruth. She leaves behind her family, the gods of her people. She's going to live her life caring for Naomi in a strange land. So these two impoverished widows make their way back to Bethlehem they're so poor, Ruth goes out to glean in the fields. And we talked about that last week, what that means. God had provided for the poor and the needy with these laws called gleaning laws, which allowed the poor, the deserving poor, opportunity to go out and work and get bread for themselves. Not handouts, but you can go and work. And that is its own filter, and it preserves the dignity of everyone who goes, right? You go, you work, you glean, you gather. And so that's what Ruth does, because they're that poor. And she happens to her eyes by chance, but from our perspective, by God's design, into the field of a man named Boaz. Boaz is a godly and generous man who has an eye out for the weak and the vulnerable, and he takes Ruth under his protection. He feeds her. He calls her his daughter. He sends her home with two weeks' worth of wages in a single day, after a single day's worth of work. He instructs her to stick close to his field, to stick close to his young women. He charges all of the young men in his camp to not lay a finger on Ruth. Boaz is a godly man, he is a good dude. When Ruth gets home, she tells everything to Naomi, and Naomi starts to get excited. She gets that sort of look in her eye because she knows who Boaz is. Boaz is what is known as a kinsman redeemer. Now, we went long last week and didn't get to talk much about what that means. So just briefly, a kinsman redeemer is basically God's provision for the weak and vulnerable in any family. The people of God in the Old Testament are a family-oriented people. They're concerned about leaving behind a godly heritage and God has made provision in his law that in the event of tragedy, the family name will continue and the maintenance of family land and property will continue. Okay? We're tied to the land, we're tied to each other, we're tied to our families. So if someone in the family dies or falls into need, the nearest male relative is expected to take care of the people and property that were part of that man's household, okay? It'd usually be the man's brother, Similarly, if a man married a woman and then died without leaving her a son to take care of her and to perpetuate the family name, his brother was obligated to marry her and provide a male heir, okay? That's meant to protect her from being thrown out into the streets, and it's meant to preserve the family line, okay? You need to think about, I know it's very weird and very different from how we think about things, but it's meant to protect those women, Okay? She's now a widow. What's going to happen to her? Well, the man, his family steps in and says, we're going to keep you in the family. We will continue to take care of you. In fact, we will provide a son who will take care of you, even into your old age. Okay. Now there's a famous example of this uh, type of thing happening in the book of Genesis. And it comes into, I'm going to just go through it briefly because it comes into the story later. And it's good to have in our heads if you don't know the story. Does anybody know the story I'm talking about? It's kind of ugly, but it's like I talked about with Scripture. Scripture is honest with us. It's real. Anybody? It's Judah and Tamar. So Judah was one of the sons of Jacob, Aram, Isaac, and Jacob. Judah was one of Jacob's 12 sons. He had a son named Ur. It's a great name. Ur. Ur married a woman named Tamar. Now the Bible says that Ur was a wicked man. And that God put him to death for his wickedness. No son. So Judah did the right thing. Judah took the next son. His name was Onan. And said, you have to take care of this woman now. You have to take care of Tamar. And Onan was... A very wicked man, and he was fine with part of what that meant, just not the actually providing babies part. You can go read the story yourself. So God puts Onan to death. Judah then just sends Tamar away and refuses to take care of her anymore, refuses to give his next son to take care of Tamar. Tamar is on her own. Tamar dresses up as a prostitute and seduces Judah and produces twin sons, Perez and Zerah. Now, Perez was the father of Hezron, the father of Ram, the father of Amminadab, the father of Nashon, the father of Salmon, the father of, any idea? Boaz, the father of Boaz. By, according to Matthew, by Rahab, who was a Gentile prostitute, but a godly woman who repented of her sins which is just some fun facts for you. We've talked about Ruth's checkered past a lot, right? The Moabites come from incest. Boaz's family, not so clean either, right? What's important for our story today, for today's passage, is that Boaz is a relative of Elimelech, and he's a redeemer. And that puts him in a category of people that can do something about Ruth and Naomi's situation. So Ruth goes on to glean in Boaz's fields for the length of the harvest, should be about six to eight weeks, two months, more or less. And that brings us to today's passage. Now, that's a lot, right? Okay, that's a lot of backstory. That's a lot of what we've been studying together. And I know the Old Testament, like, anybody notice that our sermons are like twice as long since we got into Ruth? There's a lot to explain, right? There's a lot to work through. You guys are doing great hanging with it, okay? Today's passage is weirder and messier. And it gives the scholars and the commentators all kinds of fits. I studied seven, seven different commentaries on today's passage, including technical commentaries and even one commentary by a pagan, who's an expert in Hebrew. Okay, little secret, I never read that much. Okay, I study, but I never read that much. It's usually just not worth it. Most of the commentators are just copying each other anyway, right? And so it's just a lot of repetition. In this case, uh, none of anything I studied entirely agreed with each other because this chapter is weird. So we're going to read it. We're going to read all of Ruth chapter 3. We're going to open up the context, the bigger picture, stuff that we need to know and see if we can't make sense of things, okay? All right, Ruth chapter 3. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, "'My daughter, should I not seek rest for you "'that it may be well with you? "'Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? "'See, he is winnowing barley tonight "'at the threshing floor. "'Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, "'and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, "'but do not make yourself known to the man "'until he is finished eating and drinking. "'But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies.' Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. I mean, you are liking how this sounds? Like it was weird, right? Like, what is she telling Ruth to do? Okay. If you don't feel tension, trust me, there's tension. We'll talk about it, okay? So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before anyone could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for the ways that you work in our lives and the ways you protect us from sin and guide our paths and order all things for your glory and our good. I pray this morning that you would have mercy on us, that you would lead us into your truth, that you would convict us of sin, and that you would help us to grow in godliness. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's talk about Naomi's counsel for a minute, okay? Okay. How many of you are super comfortable with what she tells Ruth to do? Anybody? Dads? Let's talk it through, okay? This is Naomi. Okay, Ruth, I want things to go well with you. Have you noticed a guy named Boaz? Have you noticed Boaz? He can solve all our problems because he loves God and he's rich and he's family. Now look, the harvest is over. You spent the last two months working in his fields. You've eaten with him. He's noticed you, but check it out. Tonight, he's going to be at the threshing floor winnowing barley. Okay, now let's stop there and talk about the threshing floor. Okay? This would be a public community place. Outside of town, some ways. I feel like I have to yell. It doesn't matter. I have speakers. It's just going to be what it is. Spring rain is beautiful. Okay. Okay, it's going to be outside of town some ways. It's going to be downhill probably. And the reason is because this is how uh, we separate the chaff from the grain. Okay, so you go to the threshing floor and you winnow. You throw the grain up in the air. You whip it around. You throw it up in the air. And the wind comes through and blows the chaff away. And the heavier grain falls. And so the more you do that, it just sort of naturally sifts. And you gather the chaff and you burn it up. Okay? Okay. So it's outside of town, and it's like a public place. Like all of the farmers with all the fields, this is where they would all come at harvest time, okay? They'd come to thresh, to winnow at threshing floor. And so you would go, and you would take your men, or you'd have your men go, and they would winnow, and then you'd have to stay all night, and you'd just work until it was done. And part of why you had to stay all night was because you needed to protect your stuff, because if you left it, Somebody might be like, oh, this is actually mine. Okay? So, guys would go, and you'd have all these young men, and this was like the, the, the big payday for everybody. Okay? We've got everything gathered. So, you have all the men, and all the young men, all the laborers, and they're all gathered, and they're all getting their paychecks for harvest for the whole year's worth. Okay? There's money in their pockets, they're alone. They're outside of town, okay? And they're going to feast and celebrate. They're going to eat and they're going to drink. Now, this type of scene would tend to attract what kind of woman? It was a dangerous place to be, okay? That's the way that it worked. So... We don't know exactly what it was like for Boaz. It could be that Boaz in his, like, you know, in Bethlehem at this time, they come in ships. Now it's Boaz's turn to go, and it's just Boaz and Boaz's men. It could be, oh, it's just all kind of a free-for-all. We don't really know. We don't know how many people could be there. It could be fairly public. It could be not. But it's kind of a dicey sort of situation, right? Okay. Food, wine, young men. And here's Naomi, and she says, Boaz is going to the threshing floor tonight. Boaz, by the way, is a good boss. It appears that Boaz doesn't have to go down to the threshing floor. We see he has a lot of people that work for him, right? Boaz is a good boss. He throws in his hand. He gets himself sweaty. Y'all have bosses like that ever? Best bosses are like that, Right? not afraid of work, not afraid to throw in on the hardest part of the work. Bosses and employers tend to fall either on the side of I do all the things or I do none of the things. I had a boss that was a I do all the things kind of guy and it held back the company because he had more important things to do but also everybody loved and respected him, right? Because we knew there was nothing he asked us to do that he was not willing, more than willing to do himself. Boaz, I just love everything about Boaz, so, all right, Boaz is going to the threshing floor, okay, Ruth, wash up, put on some perfume, get yourself looking cute, he's only ever seen you out in the fields working, stinking, sweaty, nasty, your hair all bedraggled, like, he's only seen that part of you, get cute, get pretty, wash up, put on your perfume, go down to the threshing floor. Okay, go to a place that is dangerous for your safety and for your reputation. There's no way around that. I don't see any way around that being part of her counsel. Remember, it was dangerous for Ruth in the daytime, right? Like we talked last week all about how it... Boaz is like, don't go to another field. You don't know what will happen to you there. You don't know how people are going to treat you. You don't know what the young men will do. You stay with me. You stay close to my women. And I've told my young men not to lay a hand on you. It's dangerous for Ruth in the daytime. Go out of town at night with all these same people. Okay, Ruth, go to a place that's dangerous for your safety and your reputation. Don't let anyone see that you're there. So at least we're being secretive, I guess. Now the man, wait till he's had plenty of food and wine. Does that sound like good counsel? Wait till he's had plenty of food and wine. Parents, you like the plan so far? Keep your eyes on Boaz. Watch where he lies down. Wait till he lies down and goes to sleep, having his fill of food and wine, and then go uncover his feet and lie down. Dad, do you feel good about this for your daughter? How about this next part? Whatever, do whatever he tells you to. He will tell you what to do. It's open-ended. Listen, it's meant to be open-ended. I don't have any question about that. How many of you think it sounds like a good plan? Depends on what your goal is, right? What if I told you that uncovering his feet is especially ambiguous in the Hebrew, that the word feet, being a lower member, is sometimes translated as legs, and is sometimes very clearly used as a euphemism for other lower members. This is what Naomi says. Naomi's being ambiguous. The word does mean feet. But it's open to interpretation, which is why people argue about this. And there's a whole range of commentators. Everywhere from Naomi thinks he'll be happy because he's had food and wine. And if you just go into this sort of public place, it'll be great. And God will pro- And he's a good guy. He's going to do the right thing. So just do what he says. And there are other people who are like, uh, Naomi, saying, no, Ruth, you're a Moabite. Just go do Moabite things and get the job done. And then there's everywhere in between. Now, this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? The language is intentional, and we have ambiguity. Okay, feel the tension. You feel it? It's not mine. This is just the Bible, okay? All right. So what does in between look like? right? Go do Moabite things. Everything's going to be great, and this is all above board. Um, In between looks like various things, like uh, Naomi saying, sometimes Providence needs a little helping hand. Let's throw some chaos out there and see what happens. Uh, Would Boaz be here if Tamar hadn't taken matters into her own hands? Would Jacob have been blessed if Rebecca didn't help push some things forward and trick her husband? Besides, Boaz is a good man. He'll do the right thing. Okay, how do we figure out the truth of what's going on here? Here's what we know. We know it's dangerous for Ruth to be in the wrong place at the wrong time around the wrong sorts of men, right? We know that's true. We know that's true in the daytime, and this is at night. Boaz and Naomi were both concerned about what would happen to Ruth if she went to the wrong field in the daytime. Naomi's telling her to go to the threshing floor at night after bathing and perfuming herself. Okay. What happens if one of these people we're supposed to be afraid of sees Naomi on the road, or Ruth on the road at night? What happens if they catch her sort of hanging around outside the threshing floor in the dark? What happens if she tries to make sure she sees where Boaz, but she goes to the wrong person on accident? What happens if she gets it all right? Boaz wakes up and is like, yo, sound the alarm. Woman, what are you trying to do? What happens to Ruth then? What happens if Boaz wakes up in the middle of the night with a beautiful woman next to him and he's weak and tempted? What if everything stays above board and somebody just happens to see them in the night or together in the morning? What happens then? What happens to her reputation or his? This is really risky business, right? This is, this is intense. I know some of you are gonna look and say, well, actually it's a good test of their character and truly godly people ought to be able to deal with temptation like this. Yeah, Godly people don't put themselves in the way of temptation. They don't go looking for trouble or asking for trouble like this. When I was in college or I knew couples in college, Uh, who had Ruth and Boaz nights, like it was some kind of fad. Like, did y'all ever hear of anybody doing stuff like this? Why would somebody do something like this? I'll tell you why. They want a biblical justification to go and push things as far as they can. That's why. Godly people don't go looking for trouble. Godly people run from it. Here's what the Bible says. Ephesians 5:3 Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as pro- as is proper among saints for you can be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous that is an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God 1 Thessalonians 4:3 For this is the will of God your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality 2 Timothy 2:22 Flee youthful passions Jesus Matthew 5:28 Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent Has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, but Naomi was just trying to help and it all worked out in the end. Because the Bible describes something does not mean that it prescribes it. Because it worked out means that God is gracious, not that the plan was good. If everything with a positive outcome in Scripture were a prescription, especially in relationships, the things that we could prescribe. (laughs) I mean, my goodness. How did Isaac get his wife? Well, his dad's servant went on a journey and then hoped that somebody would come and give him some water and also water his camels. So how did Rebecca get a husband? She showed up and she watered somebody's camels and gave him a drink. Let's get prescriptive. Okay, ladies. After church, it's so a Casey's right over there. <laughs> Go fill up some dude's gas tank and offer to buy him a polar pop. And it'll probably work out great. It's crazy, right? Just because the Bible describes how some things work doesn't mean it prescribes it. Now, things are more, no, I'm not Isaac and Rebecca. Okay. But we, when we try to take those circumstances and it just gets weird. Okay, so you want to take good things from Naomi's counsel? You can take good things from Naomi's counsel if you want to. Ladies, find a man like Boaz. So far, so good. Boaz, he loves Jesus. He's got a job. He's generous. So far, so good. Find a man who loves Jesus and has a job and is generous. Okay, that part's good. We can can take that from Naomi's counsel. Get in his way so he can see your character. Okay, fine. Go on a mission trip or a service project or something like that. Put yourself in the way of godly a godly man or a godly woman, dudes. So they can see your character. And then uh, also, you know, if you really you know want him to ask you on a date, wait till he's like not hangry or something, and then be sure you're looking cute, not immodest. All right, we can like we can pull some things out of there. Or we can maybe just recognize that not all counsel is equal, right? Some people with good intentions give bad counsel. Sometimes those people are in your family. They're trying to push for good things, but not in God's timing. Or they're trying to make things happen as God's little agents, but they're wrong-headed. It's your job and responsibility to figure out how to honor God, how to honor and receive the counsel of those that love you, how to make the most of it, and ultimately find your own way toward pleasing God, trusting God to be gracious. Interesting that his love does cover a multitude of sins and failures and mistakes. How many happily married people in this room got to marriage without hiccups and failures and conflicts and problems and all kinds of things that we would do differently? How many people in this room are happily married and can look back on their Whole relationship without blushing or cringing. God's gracious. God is kind. He doesn't excuse our sins. He doesn't keep us from the consequences of our sins. But He does redeem us, He does care for us, He does protect us in our relationships. So here's Ruth. Ruth's just a baby, remember? <laughs> Ruth's just a baby. She didn't grow up in a godly home, she's been living with Naomi. She's been in Bethlehem among God's people for maybe two months, right? You want to put that together with the week's journey? If If you pinpoint Ruth's conversion at the moment where she says, I'm going to go with you. She's been a believer in the Lord for maybe eight or nine weeks. This is the counsel she gets. She's going to obey it. She goes and does all the things, except for one thing. When Boaz wakes up, Ruth does not wait for him to tell her what to do. She has something to ask. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And yes, that is still fraught with sexual tension. Spread your wings over your servant is equally translated, cover me with your garment. But Ruth is doing two things. Ruth is calling back the time that Boaz told her that she has taken refuge under the wings of the Lord. And she is proposing marriage, or rather encouraging, asking Boaz to propose marriage on the basis of his status as a kinsman redeemer. In other words, she's not going to wait for him to tell her what he wants her to do. She's going to tell him what she wants. What she wants is for Boaz to marry her properly as a redeemer. She wants Boaz to take care of her and Naomi. She wants it done right. It's bold, it's forward, it's crazy risky. Anything can go wrong. It's full of faith. Boaz is able to wake up and assess the situation and understand what's going on. He knows she's there not just for herself, but for Naomi. Yeah, got all the noises this morning. He's, he knows she's not just there for herself, but for Naomi. That's part of what he says. He says this kindness is, is, outdoes the first. He's talking about the kindness of leaving everything behind to follow Naomi. Okay? This kindness that outdoes the first is the fact that she could have easily abandoned Naomi, gone after a younger man, looked after herself. She could have gone after romance or money. She didn't do either of those things. So Boaz then praises her character. We've seen this before. Boaz takes every opportunity to encourage her godliness. In this moment at midnight, he wakes up. There's Ruth. And he takes, once he understands what's going on, he takes the moment to encourage her godliness. He praises her character. He says that she's well known to be a worthy woman. That phrase is used two other times in Scripture. One is in Proverbs chapter 12. The other is in Proverbs chapter 31. It's translated excellent wife in those places. Okay, so if Ruth is coming to Boaz in a way where maybe she feels vulnerable, where she feels compromised, he takes it away from her right there. He says, I know you want to honor the Lord, and I know you're doing the right thing. He's affirming what's good and godly in Ruth. Husbands, uh, young men, take note. Okay. Then we have a problem introduced, so we'll go and see the resolution of that next week. Boaz is a redeemer. He's going to take care of all the things, but he's not first in line, so there's a wrinkle. Okay. He makes her a promise. He's going to get the job done one way or another. That other guy has got to be presented with an option. If he takes it, fine. If not, Boaz is going to marry Ruth. He's going to redeem the whole family. He's going to take care of Naomi. Boaz gives Ruth all the assurance she needs to rest easy. Okay? Now there's another promise. Ruth has what she came for. She's got a promise. She and Naomi are going to be redeemed. Boaz is going to take care of it. Boaz is a man of his word. Boaz does all the things. Now there's another problem. It's after midnight. She's outside of town. She's on the threshing floor. There are men around, perhaps out and about. Now what? If she leaves, it's going to be dangerous. Anything can happen in the middle of the night between the threshing floor and home. If she stays the night and wakes up next to Boaz and everyone sees, people are going to assume certain things. Boaz tells her to stay with him for the night and to leave super early. It's the best plan they can come up with for an imperfect situation to protect her purity and her reputation. But that's what he's concerned about. And when Boaz tells her to stay and to lay down, he uses a word related to the word lodge. Every commentator notes that usage. Why? Because there are five million ways to, to be ambiguous sexually And this word is unambiguously non-sexual. That's why. There are many ways to talk about lying down with someone in the Bible that imply all kinds of things or leave the question open. This word does not do that. Boaz tells Ruth to stay the night and he means to keep her safe from himself and from other people. Boaz is a worthy man. Ruth is a worthy woman. They pass the evening without sexual uh, consummation. Yay, Ruth and Boaz. They're going to do it right. Marriage is a covenant, and sex is the consummation of covenant love, and this whole book is a book about covenant love. Bad things happen when we take sex outside the context of marriage. Some in this room have sinned and hurt themselves and others because you've not taken sex seriously. You bought into the lies of our culture, and you've hurt yourself and other, yourselves and other people. Boaz and Ruth are godly; they want God's blessing, and they're able to look past a single night's pleasure to a lifetime of enjoying one another, the way God intended. No shortcuts. If you're single, no shortcuts. Boaz is intent on protecting Ruth's purity is also intent on protecting her reputation. Young women, find a man who's intent on protecting your purity and your reputation. That's now in danger, that reputation. So the plan is Ruth's going to get up at the crack of dawn while it's still dark before you can see who anybody is. Boaz loads her up with barley to take to Naomi. The amount is ridiculous. The estimates of what six measures of barley are range between 60 and 100 pounds. That tells you also something about Ruth, right? She's she's not just like internally strong. No, she's like strong, strong, right? She knows what she's about. Ruth goes back to Naomi. Boaz heads in to settle things. He's a man on a mission. The crisis is averted. Boaz and Ruth navigate a night of obstacles and weirdness. They come out on the other side by God's grace with their purity and their reputations intact and with a battle plan. And we'll pick that up, not next week because I'm gonna be out of town and Ben will be preaching, but the week after, okay? Spoilers, Boaz is gonna get the job done. They're gonna get married. They're gonna have a baby named Obed. Obed's gonna have a baby named Jesse. Jesse's gonna have a baby named... David is going to be king. And from David will be descended Jesus. Look at God's hand in all of this. Guiding this story to a good, good end. Sins in the past, failures of family, all coming together in a beautiful way. God cares for and provides for his children. Father, we thank you for the ways that you have cared for us and that you have guided us and that you have protected us and that you have redeemed us from our sins and our failures and our mistakes. We thank you that like Ruth, when we come to you empty-handed, you fill us up. We cannot save ourselves, but you sent Jesus to save us from our sins. And so we thank you for him. We thank you for the ways that he has loved us and cared for us. We pray that we would be men and women who follow in the example of Ruth and Boaz. In Jesus' name, amen.